The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome to this Sunday, this Sunday that is just after Juneteenth, and so a day that we are celebrating together, this Black Fourth of July Liberation Sunday, a day we commemorate. A day we commemorate when, in the furthest part of the United States, in Texas, black Americans found out that the emancipation applied to them. And so we're here to witness and celebrate. It is also Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all of you, to all of you who fathered others, who fathered us, who did all the work of protecting and cheerleading all of us into adulthood in which we knew we were loved, in which we had someone who believed in what we were capable of. All the people who did that and all those who do that work in this day, which is also one of the longest in the year. So welcome this full and busy Sunday. We have a crowd in the sanctuary today that rivals the limits imposed by the city, and I welcome them all here today. I want to welcome our thespians. We are doing our second skit. Those of you who were here months ago and saw our skit on, multi, on uh, microaggression, we are looking together at the ways that racism sneaks in into our midst and needs a way to be named so that we can banish it from the beloved community that we're creating here together. And we do that, have been doing that in part through the beautiful Trojan horse work of skits. This one, again, written by Michael Bossier and Mari Magaloni, Don Shearer, and Rochelle Fortier-Wadibia, but we have two as our thespians as part of this today, Jayanti Chapeau and Carlton Ball and Allison Jacks in a guest appearance. So I want to welcome all of them, welcome all of them here today and thank them for this offering, which you'll be lucky enough to see and be part of. I want to welcome to the chancel Judith Stoddard, longtime member of the congregation who a year ago, so the prior auction purchased, right? Was it the prior auction? Yeah. Purchased the right to help negotiate and create a sermon together, and she brought this incredible story that was the seed and some ideas that were the seed of today's service. And so she's going to share a reflection in that story with us, perfect for this Juneteenth Sunday. I want to thank our fantastic and gifted musicians, our house band for today, Miwa Steger and Michelle Kennedy. Thank you both for coming back and blessing us with your gifts. Jonathan Silk and Eric Shackelford on our tech team, Joe Chapeau, answering questions and monitoring the chat. Roberto Delau, who helped us not only get the building open today, but along with Scott Miller, got our new Black Lives Matter banner up in front of the church. So thanks a lot to Don Shearer for her designing that and getting it printed for us, and to Dolores Heilbrunn for purchasing it to make it possible for us to name for the community who drives by this place the commitments that we are working hard to live out here among us. Our flowers are courtesy of Judy Payne. 
And we are grateful to have all of you here today. So kisses to you all. The order of service, which if you don't know, if you're here for the first time with us, can be downloaded or looked at on your um, computer. It will be your guide to today's service. So please try and uh, download it quickly so you have it in front of you. And on this day in particular, when we look at the whole question of lost stories, it seems appropriate to acknowledge, as we do periodically, that those of us in San Francisco are standing on land taken from its people, the Ohlone people. And so in recognition of that truth, we name them and their land on which we now gather. So breathe in. We light a candle this morning as we have been since the beginning of our stay at home COVID chapter for all of you, for all of us, all of you brought into this space until such a time as we can gather in body together again. Welcome to worship. We will begin by singing hymn number 406. The music is in your order of service. This song, this hymn, and Kumbaya, which we'll sing at the end, are both hymns that have their origin in the Georgia Sea Isles, which figures into the story that's part of the genesis of this service. And so we wanted to sing them together today. So I invite you to sing out wherever you are as we join in our opening hymn. Yes. <laughs> 
Reiko-san, I forgot to mention that you're here because we had many, many weeks that we didn't know enough about this disease that we, and this virus, that we wanted to keep Reiko-san safe. And now she feels and we feel comfortable taking precautions to have her here, so we are graced to have you here in person. I want to just share with you all a few announcements that you'll notice in your order of service or I invite you to look for particularly. One is just a reminder that there's a chance to have a little taste of small group ministry over the summer, which is a group of eight to ten people who meet with a topic to discuss, a question for a short period of time, twice a month, so four times potentially over the summer, although they may have groups that only meet in August in particular. I invite you to consider joining, way to connect with a group of people and have a conversation that goes deep in the way that many of us come to religious community hoping to find just such spaces. And there's an opportunity to, uh, to dive in and if you like it to join one for the whole rest of next year. I wanna point out that our humanist non-theist group is continuing to meet and schedule speakers and programs and they have rich folks on the docket for this month as they have in the months past. So please look for those in your order of service and feel free to join in on any that are of interest to you. I wanna note that this last week our board passed a resolution in commitment to our racial justice and equity work that we are busy trying to figure out ways to implement and to share with city leaders so that they know where we stand. And I would invite you, there's a link in your order of service, to download it and read it and to think about what ways you think we might live this out, these principles and commitments in concrete work, either here among us or in the world. And let us know that. We've created a new um, email account, wholeness at UUSF. Org, so that we can find out those ideas from you as we begin to look at, we have a few we're already starting on, but a few more we would love going forward as we iterate what it means to live into this work. Not just in this moment, but in a, an ongoing commitment. So please, we're really proud of the resolution and we wanna gather momentum in living it out together. In this month, we have a book group. We are going to be reading a few chapters every week. Look in your flame of the book that is our reading this morning. So you want to talk about race. So I invite you to think about joining that an hour a week on Wednesday evenings. And finally, folks, if you aren't getting our flame, which is our source of information and invitations that goes out weekly via email, Email us at info at uusf.org and let us know that you'd like to receive it and we will get you on the mailing list so you can find out about these and other opportunities to connect and go deeper as we live through this time together. Thank you. You are invited to join us in our unison chalice lighting. The words are in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. I'll breathe in, I'll breathe in. 
And now please join us in our spoken covenant and sung doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Imagine, if you will, a world where social distance is not defined as the haves and have-nots, a world where face-to-face is not side-by-side Zoom. Imagine a world of good intentions and right actions. For your consideration, an advice columnist offering reflection on the space between intention and deed. Let us share a few letters to Miss Justification postmarked from the Two White Zone. Dear Miss Justification, my church council is asking me to attend a racial sensitivity training I think it's a waste of time and resources, especially since I don't see color. How do I gracefully decline? Signed, colorblind. Dear colorblind, if you don't see color, you must have a hard time navigating stoplights. But seriously though, claiming that you don't see color reveals a lack of understanding about how race operates in our society. Pretending not to see race does not solve the problem of racism. Instead, it inhibits the fight against it. The racial sensitivity training that your church is asking you to attend is a good place to start, to understand our racially stratified society and maybe even inspire you to work for change. Oh, and remember, the light on the top is red means stop. Dear Miss Justification, 
Yesterday was Cinco de Mayo, and I wanted to celebrate the day by making a special Mexican meal for my family. So after the service, I asked my choir director to introduce me to his Mexican wife. When I asked her how to make Velveeta nacho cheese, she told me to go straight to, well, that suffice to say it rhymes with Taco Bell. I'm baffled by her reaction. After all, I love her people. They make all those festive drinks. Signed, Chili Confusion. Dear Chili Confusion, as a general rule, it's never a good idea to try to relate to a new acquaintance with stereotyping and generalizations. It takes time to get to know an individual and develop a respectful relationship. Your letter leaves no doubt that you are drawn to Mexican culture. Unfortunately, you have been exposed to it through the pernicious lens of racist cultural appropriation. I'm pretty sure that Velveeta Nacho Cheese has never been a part of authentic Mexican cuisine. Communicating with people from different regions and cultures can be exciting and enriching, but I would encourage you to do some reading about Mexico, and please, tread lightly, be respectful, and listen humbly when encountering any human being you know nothing about. It's okay to learn about culture by reading a book, just make sure it's not a cookbook. Dear Miss Justification, I'm a longtime member of the congregation with a well-known history of fighting for diversity and justice. Recently, I learned the People of Color group had a potluck that wasn't open to the congregation at large. I'm white and I feel very uncomfortable with this. I feel marginalized and more than a little betrayed. Is this what reverse discrimination feels like? Signed, Whiteout. Dear Whiteout, people of color and white people certainly have work to do to repair the damage caused by racism. But some of the work needs to be done separately. A gathering like the potluck is a place where people of color can be the main focus of attention, while they work out shared experiences and traumas with their peers in a physically and emotionally safe environment. Mixed gatherings have a completely different purpose and dynamic, and truth be told, often devolve into debate and defensiveness fueled by white-centeredness. You can help the healing along by deepening your spiritual practice to include learning more about institutionalized racism and unconscious biases that affect people of color. After all, how often do you ask yourself where the people of color are in group photos or events you attend? Finally, reverse discrimination is a myth. That implies that the playing field is level, a clearly absurd notion that could Use some erasing with some real whiteout. Hmm. Dear Miss Justification, a friend of mine recently moved to our area and joined our church. After a service I found particularly uplifting, she confided in me that she's finding it more than a little difficult than she had expected to be one of our only few persons of color in the congregation. I was very surprised when she told me this because ours is a liberal religion. I reminded her that we have a rich history of being at the forefront of every human rights movement starting with the abolitionists. As a matter of fact, 
You may know one of our former pastors. John Behrens has written a book on the subject. Anyway, this only seemed to make her withdraw more, and she told me that she misses her community and culture. I'm at a loss. How can she feel lonely when she's surrounded by so many well-intentioned people? Signed, E. Pluribus Unum. Dear E. Pluribus Unum, while you are surrounded by friends that look and sound like you, your friend is doing a great deal of emotional labor just to stay in the same place. Navigating the two-white zone is exhausting to marginalized and underrepresented people. No matter how liberal or inclusive the congregation believes itself to be, working so hard just to maintain and create an insurmountable barrier between your friend and her religion. Though your church's history is totally woke, your friend's alienation is an indicator that there is plenty of work to do today to make your congregation a place where people of color can feel included. Numbers matter. Perhaps the time has come to create more pluribus and less unum. Imagine, if you will, a world filled with people on a responsible search for truth and meaning, who affirm the worth and dignity of every person doing the work of promoting justice and equity and compassion. These letters went to a misjustification, but she's not alone. There are countless letters going out daily to her cohorts, misinformation, misassumptions, and misguided. Letters from people looking for validation for their missteps, to lighten their load on the journey to right relations. It's not that justification, it's not justification, but in fact, it is mindful intention followed by action that puts us on the path, the winding road that paves the space between unconscious bias and privileged expectations. There is a signpost up ahead for all who will heed it, lit by spiritual and life practices of learning that signals the way out of the two white zone. I invite us to take a moment and prepare for the ritual that's become a practice here together of remembrance and commitment, recommitment. We begin recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. And we will ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have every Sunday since last July, in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps. 
and we let its ringing stand symbolically for those adults who have lost their lives in these camps and those who remain in them, many separated from their families still, and now at risk of COVID-19 infection. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to the virus we now know by name, the symptoms we have set to memory. This week, around the globe, 36,000 people lost their lives to COVID-19, 4,492 in the United States. We hold in our hearts them, and we hold in our hearts all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential services, who suffer from job loss, whose lives are especially vulnerable to the virus. Finally, we ring our gong for the 155th anniversary this last week of Juneteenth, the day in 1865 when the most remotest of states got word to the enslaved black Americans that they were free. For the true emancipation of black lives in the United States, we will ring our gong five times, one for each of the five centuries of life lived under the yoke of slavery, prejudice, and white supremacy culture. May we keep those we have named and all who love or loved them in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
I invite us now into a time of meditation, reflection. Let us regather ourselves. In a world of challenging thoughts and yearnings, sadness, anger, re-traumatizing truths brought to light, conflict that is hard and important. We need places and times to gather and regather. To pull soul back into body. To center down in that place that holds when the world risks spinning off its axis. That grounds us when change comes at us like the speed of light. To feel the gravity that holds us to this world. So I invite you to feel your feet on the ground. Be present to your body, head, arms, heart, chest, abdomen, pelvis, thighs, legs, feet. Feel the air that leaves through your nostrils or your mouth. Know that what we release makes space for what we welcome. And feel the trust settling that you can face and be present to what comes. That like the body prayer that runs its hands through the blessings scattered at our feet and presses them into us from the abundance of each day. That what we gather and offer will be enough.
So in the silence, I invite us to hold together for a moment. May we awake to quiet reunion with our most inward self. Blessed be.
Attending a black history assembly at my daughter's school filled me with both sorrow and gratitude. Sorrow for our dark past of slavery, Jim Crow, and ongoing inequity. Gratitude for the steady beat of contributions made by those who persisted despite it all. Sorrow because this was my country's history, my history, which had been kept from me. Gratitude that my children had the opportunity to learn so much more, that they could grow up singing, lift every voice. One of the stories which I only encountered as an adult was that of the first African resident on Sapelo Island off the coast of Georgia. Bilali was an educated young Muslim when he was captured somewhere in West Africa sometime in the late 18th century. Observations recorded during his lifetime, stories told about him by his descendants more than 100 years after his death, and a document in his own hand tell us that he must have been a person of extraordinary strength of body, mind, and character. He survived the terror of kidnapping, torn forever from his home, family, and community. Then the deprivation and horror of imprisonment, the desperation of the voyage to an unknown destination, and the years of hard labor which followed. Bilali chose to live, to make the accommodations necessary to stay alive through permanent exile and enslavement, and at the same time, to live with dignity. He was taken first to the Bahamas then in 1802 brought to Sapello along with at least some of his children, perhaps all of his family, and placed in charge of a new plantation. Bilali was by then an expert in the cultivation of several demanding crops. His commanding presence was noted by visitors to the island and recalled by his descendants. Though they knew his name, they also referred to him as the African, because he remained steadfastly true to his heritage. Among themselves, the members of his family conversed in Fula, the language of his birthplace, as well as the Arabic they used for ritual purposes, regularly observing the hours of prayer. Bilali also remained a scholar 
After his death, a bound leather notebook in which he had written was found among his possessions. I am grateful to those who recognized its importance even before they knew how to read it. It has now been recognized as a treatise in Arabic on West African Islamic law. Learning of this highly literate man, cut off from his heritage, from his community, from books, from the discourse for which he had been educated for so many decades, caused me to perceive more keenly than I ever had before the utter evil of the Atlantic slave trade and its long dark shadow still with us. I believe his is a story that should be known. For me, this is also a story that literally cuts close to home. My husband's grandfather grew up on Defusky, several islands north of Sapello, speaking Gullah, the language created from a mixture of African languages and English by the early residents of those coastal areas. The down payment for the house in which we live came from Harold's share from the sale of Defusky land. We are indebted, if not directly to Bilali himself, certainly to his counterparts on that other island. And to a larger extent, not only my family, but all of us, are indebted also to Bilali and to the uncountable others whose labor grew this country, who were here by compulsion, never compensated or even thanked. We owe to them and to their descendants acknowledgement and gratitude. We owe to them an end to systemic racism. We owe reparations in a variety of forms so that their descendants are given real opportunities and genuinely equitable societal structures. And we owe that we seek and tell their stories so they are not lost, but take their place in the full story of our nation. Now is the time to take our weekly offering, but after Judith's piece, though I'd read it, just listening to it, it feels to me inappropriate to take an offering for the church. So I would just ask you to take whatever you are going to give to the church as an additional offering this morning and think of an organization that is promoting equity and justice and give it there. In the spirit of this moment or out of the spirit of moments like this. And if you want ideas or guidance, just email the church and we will send you some of the ones we've identified. Thank you. Oh, 
I sit and watch for that golden dawn that beckons me when the sun goes down. I'll seek this home in the golden west that lures me reading comes from So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo, one of the many books that's now topping the New York Times bestseller list. She writes the following near the beginning of the book. These are very scary times for a lot of people who are just now realizing that America is not and never has been the melting pot utopia their parents and teachers told them it was. These are very scary times for those who are just now realizing how justifiably hurt, angry, and terrified so many people of color have been all along. These are very stressful <clears throat> times for people of color who have been fighting and yelling and trying to protect themselves from a world that doesn't care to suddenly be asked by those who've ignored them for so long, what has been happening your entire life? Can you educate me? Now that we are all in the room, how do we start this discussion? This is not just a gap in experience and viewpoint. The Grand Canyon is a gap. This is a chasm that you could drop entire solar systems into. But no matter how daunting, you are here because you want to hear and to be heard. You are here because you know that something is very wrong and you want a change. We can find our way to each other. We can find a way to our truths. I've seen it happen. My life is a testament to it. And it all starts with conversation. Michael Rowe, the boat ashore, hallelujah. Michael Rowe, the boat ashore, Jesus to the cross, hallelujah. 
you notice that those words are Harry Belafonte's and take a familiar hymn back to a time in American history when we were in a similar place of uprising and rethinking of the America we wanted to shape and reshape and reckoning. So it seemed appropriate to sing this morning. Author Ijeoma Oluo points out how the desire that's, that's taking hold of the country to cross this chasm of race and history, the one you could drop whole solar systems into, how it begins, the way to bridge it, with conversation. Conversation that might be awkward, particularly for white folks who aren't used to it. Conversation that we as a nation have to learn how to have. Conversation that will inevitably cause some hurt. Conversation that hopefully people of color won't be asked to lead. As white folks learn that we have to first do our own reckoning research, education, among ourselves. Conversation that is already teaching some Americans, white Americans in particular, how little we really knew about our country, about what it means in particular to live as a brown person, an indigenous person, or any other person of color, but especially as a black person in America. And all this truth that is the truth of lived experience in this moment, how it didn't just 
show up this way, right? In this moment, ex nihilo, as we say in religion. It was laid down those layers of lies and customs of quiet assents and legal and legislative choices to codify practices and myths and prejudices and inequities that would have a momentum of their own. That's what structural racism is all about, right? That set of practices and structures and customs that has this seemingly natural momentum forward to replicate itself, the ease of it all, the deniability. And so the slaver's rope ties to the church's doctrine, links to the overseer's whip, is connected to the ropes hung over trees on courthouse lawns and children forcibly walked by human beings hung from trees, strange fruit meant to send a message. And a force created initially to recapture runaway slaves morphs into the uniformed officers that hold back the marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and hold back the protesters in Washington, D.C., outside the White House, and laws that justified human ownership, later limit voting, and then codify loan practices to exclude the main means for wealth accumulation from black Americans, and social security that intentionally chooses to exclude cleaning ladies and day laborers and nannies lifts the largest number of people out of poverty in American history, any act of government in U.S. history ever, but it leaves black folk behind. And all this carries down to a knee in the neck while bystanders yell for mercy and a woman screaming danger in a park for no reason but her own pride and a boy hunted down while jogging or shot by police for fighting back and whose crime otherwise, in one case recently, was being inebriated at the fast food drive through line. History has to be part of this conversation, the one that bridges the chasm so we cannot say that anything we see is anything but legacy, long and chosen again and again by white folk. And the big difference now maybe is that cell phone videos and police body cameras and security camera footage has broken through any denial of what is being chosen and how often. Judith came to me with part of that history and the question and the sadness and the anger about the part of the history that is about a person's story being lost. Stolen history. Lost, stolen, buried for many black Americans in particular. And the basics of that story is familiar. It's not universal for all black Americans, but it is a common part of many black Americans' stories. The part that overlaps with Bilali's. A person taken away from their home, kidnapped by slavers, 
crammed into inhuman spaces for an inhuman journey to an inhumane life. And part of that story, of course, is people taken from their land, their culture, their families, slave logs, only listing the sex and approximate age of the person. And so the erasing begins. Families got no official privileging to stay together, nor people of a certain language or cultural group. Only in Louisiana and very late in Alabama were there laws that said that mothers couldn't be separated from their small children, wedding vows not legally recognized, included changes of wording to things like until death or distance do you part. So, robbed of one story, any story you tried to create and keep was regularly ripped from you. In 1930, as part of the Works Progress Administration, writers were dispatched to take oral histories of those adults who were still alive, who had once been enslaved, and the Smithsonian put out a collection of some of these oral histories in a book with accompanying recordings called Remembering Slavery. African Americans talk about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. In it, and elsewhere where oral histories exist, there are documented accounts of those former enslaved folks after emancipation trying desperately to reunite with husbands or children or parents. One woman, Ava Strayhorn, told of how her mother had watched so many folks from her part of the country who'd been emancipated head north with Union soldiers to start a new life somewhere else, but how her mother stayed. My Henry is in the South, her mother said, and I'll never see him again if I leave the old home place, for he won't know where to find me. Strayhorn's mother in order to stay, had to formally take the oath of peace at the local Freedmen's Bureau, miles away. Does anyone know what the oath of peace is? It was an oath you had to take saying you would obey the laws and not harbor rebel soldiers or others who were hindering the cause of the North. So she took the oath and she stayed and waited in a cabin in the woods. Eventually, Eventually, in her case, it was her former master who snuck back and offered to take her and her kids south to where he knew her husband was. And that ending was a happy one, but so many couldn't find their loved ones or found them in new marriages or found the children taken from them as infants or toddlers who had by then been raised by other parents. One woman, Harriet Smith, describes watching soldiers walk a road, all of them heading home, as she and her friends stood and leaned up against a fence just after emancipation. She tells a story about how one black soldier comes over and talks to them, 
and then says to one girl, did she want to go back with him to San Antonio? He had an extra horse. And so she went with him and she was never heard from again. The interviewer asked, she didn't even tell her mama she was going or anything, huh? And Mrs. Smith answered, she didn't have any mother. Imagine, imagine so little connection, so little to hold you, so little story to tell that someone you don't know offers you a chance to start to make a story with them, a stranger headed to a strange land, and you go. You could make that sound glamorous, I imagine, adventurous. But at its heart, it is a tale of unspeakable loss and yearning to be done with loss. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African American Research at Harvard University, is also, as you may know, the host of Finding Your Roots, a show on PBS, which I highly encourage you to watch if you haven't. Gates interviews famous people about what they know about their family history and their genealogy, and then he brings in his professional genealogical researchers and geneticists to try and fill in the gaps. Early on, the show was almost entirely, I think, black American guests. And it speaks, the show, always to the power of knowing the story, the larger story of the family that we're part of. In one episode, Amir Khalib Thompson, an American musician, band leader, and DJ professionally known to many of you as Questlove, he listens as Gates traces his roots, meaning traces Questlove's roots, back to one relative who was a day laborer, a great-grandfather in Mobile, Alabama. And then, even rarer, they find documents that say that that man's father was registered as Charles Lewis. And they look at the census document that has his name, and it includes his birthplace, Africa. More research reveals that Lewis was one of the slaves on the last ship to bring slaves to the U.S., the infamous Clotilda that brought, when it left Africa, 125 slaves from Benin, West Africa, into Mobile, Alabama in 1860, 52 years after the importing of slaves had been made illegal. The operator of the ship, so the story goes, brought the ship and the slaves across to win a wager he'd made that, in which he said he could do that. Another guest, actor S. Epatha Merkerson, finds that part of her lineage 
traces back to the 272 slaves that the Jesuit leaders of Georgetown University sold in 1838 when they also sold their increasingly unprofitable tobacco plantations in the infamous sale that kept the university alive and which has been part, as some of you may know, of a very public conversation about accountability and reparations. Apatha said of knowing what she'd been told of some of her descendants, they have names. Questlove said of the discoveries about his lineage, until an hour ago, I didn't know who I was or where I came from. To really have roots, I mean, what tree do you know that can thrive without any place in the ground? I don't think it takes much to give us a sense of the river of life in which we stand as part of and to know gratitude for those that brought us to this moment and some of what they endured. But all of that, or having some of that and the sense of obligation and joy and purpose in carrying it forward, it's such powerful knowledge, how it changes your sense of yourself and your place in this world. Think about your own family roots and whatever it is you know about them, the names you know, the few facts. A few months back, my father and I got on Ancestry.com. It's costing us a fortune at this point. But it's addicting to trace back, to feel the power of whole branches of trees that open up and there are stories and photos saved there. And, and it's so painful too to hit the losses of a dead end in your family tree and not know what was passed there. There is, there is a power in knowing these stories that we're part of and a literal rootlessness in not knowing them. And I don't know all the reasons why that is true, but I feel the truth of it. So there's this piece of what black Americans have lost. And then there is Judith's story the one she brought, this other layer it adds to this conversation. This story, just this one story of the man we know as Bilali, brought to the Georgia Sea Isles by way of the Bahamas and originally from some part of the vast coast of West Africa, even that we don't know about him. His is a story that opens up in a small leather-bound book he leaves behind in his native language. A book that not only told volumes about Arab law, but even more so, it told volumes about a man who had a whole life 
a rich and promising life with training and gifts to offer to his own people, stolen from him and almost entirely lost. Even any trace of it. And one imagines him writing the volume of law and wonders why, why write it? Out of love of the law and the studies, out of yearning for that life? To leave a legacy, a little bit of legacy, the legacy you dreamed of for yourself as a young man that was taken from you, and maybe also, maybe, to keep that piece of your story alive, even if just for yourself. So in today's conversation, this piece of it, we name, we start to name all that's stolen and thereby all that's lost in the history of our nation, of our people. Lost first in slavery, how insufficient those four words are, five words are. And then in a world of structural inequalities that disadvantage black people and people of color so that stories of talent and accomplishment that could have and could still unfold are lost or in danger of being lost to the world in unrealized possibility. And how indigenous communities were and are still systematically eliminated and with them the loss of stories and culture, the fight to hang on to culture and stories that remain. And this America that one would think privileges the loss of story, the devaluing of ties to place and some kind of rootlessness And who does that serve? So to Ijeoma Uluo's point, let this morning be part of the conversation that starts to bridge the chasm that is race and history, the one that could swallow whole solar systems except and unless we insist on going where it takes us, even stumbling our way through it. And we do insist, don't we? I expect, as miracles and mysteries often work their magic, that we will find, all of us find, that the journey to tend to another's wholeness and healing long overdue takes all of us on a parallel journey towards our shared healing and wholeness. And so we close with a prayer. Spirit of life and love, may all people mourn the names they do not know, the places they will not know as their own, but that they have in their blood that we do have these people and places nonetheless is so. 
So may the lineage of survivors of resilient people be one we still call on in moments of need and despair. May our lives be ones we still live to make proud their lives and sacrifice, to live out dreams they must have hoped their descendants someday would be capable of. And may we know together that for this nation to thrive, we must have the hard conversations that are about telling the stories that hold our feet to the fire about the reality of loss and suffering and the call to make this a land finally with liberty and justice for all. Amen.
And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.